Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. I am super excited about the show. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We got a whole podcasting roundtable going on here. So let's get to the introductions. Usually I am the one that kind of spells out who everybody is, but because there's enough of us and I want everyone to be able to recognize everyone's voices through this, I will let you guys introduce yourself. So we will start out with Anne. Hey, Anne, who are you? Hi, I'm Anne Jones. I'm based in Sydney, Australia, and I produce a podcast called Off Track for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which we call the ABC, but that can get a bit confusing. And it's basically a one-woman show. I do everything from think up the ideas, all of the recording, all of the editing, all of the sound design, and I present it. So that's what I do, one-woman podcasting machine. <laughs> and your website, abc.net.au slash rn slash off track. That's it. And we'll have a link to that one. Next up is Dan Powell. Hey, Dan. Hey, Renee. My name is Dan. I'm based out of Brooklyn. I co-produce a horror radio drama podcast called Archive 81. I handle all sound design mixing. I also do some voice acting and to a degree I kind of co-write it. I also by day work at a radio recording studio. I do a lot of engineering work for places like NPR, BBC, occasionally Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and <laughs> um, and then I also help manage SoundSnap, which is a major commercial sound effects library. And that's how I originally met you guys. My side library is Echo Collective, and that's that's something that goes over there. Uh, next up is Jeff Emptman. Jeff, how are you, man? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So tell us what you do. I produce a podcast for KCRW. Um, I live in Seattle, they're in LA, and my podcast is called Here Be Monsters. It's a collection of things I'm afraid of and things that other contributors are afraid of. Bill it as the podcast about the unknown, which is just kind of gloriously vague, but um, we, we do stories about, about things people fear, mostly. I started out in 2012 in my basement in Colorado, and now I produce it out of my basement in Seattle. Awesome. That's what I do. HBMpodcast.com. Super cool podcast. I've been, I've been locked into that one for a long time. So oh, Thanks. I appreciate that. Love that. It's so great to hear all your voices. I listen to all your podcasts and radio shows, so it's weird to hear you guys actually talking to me instead <laughs> of at me. Yeah. So, Tim, why don't you kick us off here, man? Yeah, sure, Renee. First of all, I just want to set up a couple things. We have two more people that are going to be joining us. They're having some technical difficulties, so we thought we'd get started without them. So I'll kind of take a moment here to pre-introduce them so when they arrive, they can just jump right into the flow of the show. First, I'll introduce Dylan Keith, who is the director of sound design for the amazing show Radio Lab that's based out of New York City on WNYC. And obviously, I think most people are going to be familiar with that show. It's kind of one of the uh, it's kind of one of the first radio shows slash podcasts. I guess it was a radio show first uh, that really took sound design to another level. And uh, in addition to Dylan joining us, we're also going to be joined by Jeremy Bloom, who is a technical producer and sound designer at WNYC Studios which is also based in New York City, obviously, WNYC. WNYC Studios is their new department that's set up just to produce kind of groundbreaking podcast content. So he's working there and making podcasts nonstop. So it'll be great to hear what those guys have to say about all this. On another note, this episode is going to be part of the theme month for designingsound.org this month. Their theme is on radio and podcasts, so this kind of fits in there perfectly. I'm glad that the timing worked out. So if you're interested in what we're talking about today, head over to designingsound.org and you can find uh, their themes. And this is uh, going to be part of that, so I'm sure there'll be lots of other content that'll match up with what we're talking about today. 
So this episode that you're listening to has been a bit of a long time coming. I've tried to reach out to lots of different producers of radio and podcast content that cover a huge swath of different types of storytelling within the medium. So we have Anne and Dylan who are producing documentary or factual content, and they're going to be on the same show with us with Dan, who is producing horror fiction, so nothing factual about it. Dylan, Jeremy, and Anne are working out of huge companies, while Jeff, Renee, and I doing tone benders, we're working out of our homes doing this. Many of the shows represented today are broadcast on large networks, while others only go out on RSS feeds. So hopefully the following conversation will kind of be able to find a lot of common grounds between all of us and also help us look into the other worlds that each of us inhabit. So uh, let's start the show by talking about how we get each episode going. So let's start off with Dan. How are you putting together the content for your audio drama Archive 81? Um, so where it starts for us is the script writing. My co-producer and business partner, Mark, and I, he handles the actual script writing and it st- starts with us for just coming up with the ideas. The premise of the show is it's a guy alone in his room listening to these weird tapes all day. And that came from what was my real-life job at the time because I was working at SoundSnap, a major commercial sound effects library. And my job was listening to every single sound effect and tagging it before it went on the site. And I was doing this job from home alone, so I'd spend eight hours a day alone just listening to weird sounds. Like some days it'd be hundreds of door slams, some days it'd be weird sci-fi stuff. And I was discussing this with Mark and we thought, hmm, is there a way a story could come out of this? So for us, that's where the story starts, just thinking of ways to make a, you know, weird sci-fi story. And one specifically that we think translates well in an audio-only format. Like we wouldn't want to make something that would work better as a book or movie. Um, Sound and ideally sound technology has to be a part of the plot. So from a story sense, that's where stuff starts from for us. A found footage horror is a pretty common thing, and I think a lot of people are even sick of it at some point. But uh, with radio drama, we thought it would be cool if found footage audio tapes were a major plot element. So you have a character who's in one world listening to tapes that sort of take you to another world, and it's a pretty easy plot device. My opinion of a lot of audio dramas is that the strongest ones take place in what's a sound-native context. There's a really great piece by a podcast called The Truth, called Tape Delay. The story takes place over a series of recorded phone calls, and I think that's a really strong way to tell a story just in sound, because we all know what a phone call feels like, we all know what a voice message feels like. You don't need someone to explain, ah, we're walking through the library now, oh look, there's a dead body on the floor. You just know how a, a phone call sounds. Same with War of the Worlds was such a you know compelling thing when it came out, when they broadcast it, because it was treated as a radio broadcast. They weren't trying to simulate, oh, the scientist is out in the field, look, there's a flying saucer. It was just treated in its native format like a radio broadcast. Staying native to worlds that we already as listeners know to be strictly sound-based, like a phone call or a radio broadcast, uh, for me and what I do with uh, audio drama, I think is a really good place to start. I know, Jeff, you actually did one episode that was also fictional with Here Be Monsters, and you kind of spelled it out at the end. What's, what's the approach that you guys have when you're, when you're deciding the format and the structure with regards to that kind of thing? That episode in particular was an interesting case because we had never done audio fiction before on the podcast, and it was something that we, we struggled with. It was with Eric Malinsky, who has a really great podcast called Imaginary Worlds, and he on his stream will mix nonfiction and fiction pieces on the stream, but he learned very early on to always identify the fiction as fiction up front because he would get a lot of angry letters. 
And so on his version of that episode that we collaborated on, which is, um, it's an episode about him, uh, him trying to figure out essentially why people are interested in Cthulhu specifically, right? Like of all of Lovecraft's demons, why is it Cthulhu specifically that people hone in on? He starts off with an, with a real interview, and then we transition into some imagined characters. And then by the end, it should be apparent, just wildly apparent to anyone, that at some point, the line between fiction and nonfiction has been crossed. Although it, I think, was in some ways confusing for our listeners, because we had never we had never had a, a fiction piece on before. That was that was a that was a hard choice for us to make because so much of what we do is is reliant on our listeners' trust, but. We also try to give our listeners enough credit to uh, be skeptical of what's presented to them. But there was an interesting challenge in that because we were willfully deceiving people. I had to really up my sound design game because I was creating environments that I was trying to make sound just objectively real. And that was that was a big challenge for me. And I, I learned a lot in the creation of that episode in particular as far as how how the acoustics of sound work and how to try to accurately recreate them from a garden variety of of audio sources that I had I'd either recorded or downloaded. Yeah, that's the tricky thing is because in reality, sounds always exist in context and in the context of the distance from the listener and also the reflections around them. Right, right. I know, and you, you have sounds going out throughout the entirety of your stuff. How do you approach the way that you're running the recordings versus the actual voices and, and how do you balance all of that? Yeah, it is a delicate balance because the premise of Off Track is that it's a completely immersive in a real environment because it is broadly speaking, a natural history podcast or an environmental-based podcast. So it's always a difficult balance because some Australian birds are really rowdy, for example, and so to get them balancing nicely with actual interviews uh, can be a bit different. So I'm generally taking all of the interviews actually on site as well. So they'll actually have live sound underneath them. So I'm not necessarily actually adding in that sound. It's just actually occurring in the interview tracks. To get it to be so immersive, I take huge swathes of atmospheres and specific recordings of species that I might be targeting or species that will help people understand the environment, but then also the movement through the environment because that is so descriptive. So the what the sound of a certain type of leaf litter versus a rainforest leaf litter will be completely different when a footfall hits it. And it will tell you all about the rainfall of the area, of the moisture, of, of what you can expect to be feeling creeping up your legs sort of. So I basically take a whole heap of it. And then it's sort of like the Coco Chanel thing, you know, you put it all on and then you take one piece of jewelry off at the end to make sure you haven't overdone the outfit. <laughs> I sort of feel like the sound design can sort of be a bit like that. We are joined by Jeremy and Dylan from WNYC. Hey, guys, how are you? Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Sorry about the, our tardiness. Hello. It's all good. No problem, just, no problem. We're just hanging out. Um, <laughs> Do you guys want to just quickly introduce yourselves for us? I'm, uh, I'm Dylan Keefe. I'm the director of sound design for Radiolab. And I'm Jeremy Bloom. I'm a technical producer and sound designer for WNYC Studios, which is WNYC's podcasting department. So we're just kind of starting at a high level here and talking about how you guys approach the way you structure the sound design versus the voices. Like, what's your general approach as you got a story coming together and you're working on the elements? So one thing that's sort of new to me in radio, because I come from a theater and a film background, is this idea that you can actually move the voices and the narration around to facilitate your sound design. So so it's sort of more of one big cohesive process. So unlike a film where you're dealing with, um, you know, locked picture and time code and you have to sort of 
adjust your sound design to dialogue that's already synced to lips on screen. Uh, in radio, we actually have the luxury of being able to move the dialogue around to accommodate sound design moments as well. Do you guys do a lot of palette building on the front end? Yeah, it, it, it depends. Actually, one of the first things that Jeremy and I worked on, we're a bi-weekly podcast and, and the, the shows are pretty sound rich and pretty complicated and go through lots of edits, um, edits meaning editorial edits. So one of the first things that we worked on together was um, Jeremy sort of coming up with source material for what ends up being sort of a diagrammatic description of, of uh, a scientific event. <laughs> so uh, we talked specifically about bubbles entering the bloodstream and going into the brain or the shrimp that created a particular kind of bubble. And so we talked very specifically about what each component might sound like. And then he sort of generated those things as a, as a palette. I ended up sort of putting it all together into, into a scene. So sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's very much just like we're on deadline and I go and grab some shit from the internet. <laughs> nice. You go to SoundSnap? Yeah, right. <laughs> How do you guys deal with deadlines? I know, Anne, you have to put out a show weekly. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm on a weekly deadline. Yeah, that's a heck of a deadline for you. <laughs> and then Radio Labs every other week, as you mentioned. Archive 81, you had a regular weekly release, I think, didn't you, Dan? Uh, it's bi-weekly, yeah. So how do you guys set yourselves up to meet all these deadlines? So on Here Be Monsters, how do you approach that, Jeff? Well, I mean, the short answer to that is very poorly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking about this a couple of days ago. I was trying to think if I have ever put out a show that was finished more than 48 hours ahead of time. And I'm pretty sure the answer is no. I've got an episode coming out on Wednesday, and I haven't recorded my narration or the credits yet. And it's what are you doing a, talking to us? <laughs> I, I thought this call was at eight o'clock. I uh, <laughs> I, um, I uh, got surprised by this. Um, yeah, no, I I've always been really bad at deadlines, like self discipline. You know, I, I've worked for myself my entire adult life, and you know, even these many years later, I still don't feel like I have a handle on it. I have a feeling that means that it's something I'm going to struggle with. The the plus side of it, like the good side of it, right, is that I don't do 12 edits on everything. I'm usually in the in the realm of maybe four. And I, I know that I have this tendency when I work on something that I can really overwork on it. I can go past the ideal stopping point. I'm bad at deadlines, and that's hindered me in so many ways throughout my life. But there is this other side of it that's good where I, I really don't think that I... I wind up in the overcooking it side of it too often. Although that's a matter that's a matter of judgment, of course. And how do you deal with your schedule? Well, in some ways, I'm lucky this is my primary job. Um, and so I get to spend, you know, my whole working life, my whole existence, sometimes it feels like working on this program. And the thing is that what's part of my job is creating the weekly program, which goes into a broadcast slot and into podcast, but I'm also required to be, uh, to actually produce a whole heap of other online multimedia that occurs. So it's a quite a large workload for a weekly one person program. And, uh, how I deal with it is by being like super duper organized because one of the constraints on the program is actually the travel. It's all recorded on site. It's very rarely recorded, you know, in studio or by studio link or anything like that. So Australia is a really big country for me to get to the other side is like a six hour flight. Um, and then, you know, you might still have to drive another six or 12 hours to get out to a, a national park or something like that. It actually takes a lot of time to record. So 
How I set up a long-term workflow is my recording trips, I record several programs in a, in a block and bring them back and then we'll edit them over, you know, six months so that it sounds like I'm travelling around all over the country all the time, but I can't actually do that and physically get a program out every week. The breakdown of like the time that I would spend on each episode would be say roughly one day spent traveling and recording, then three days spent um, editing and polishing and recording the voiceovers and all of that. And then one day spent, um, you know, putting all of my photos and video through the processing that needs to happen and to do all the long form writing that um, we're expected to do at this uh, station as well. So uh, yeah, so that's the the breakdown and then it all begins again the next week. Um, I come from a traditional radio background. I was a, a literally a morning host for quite a long time. So, you know, talking to the clock, it's one of those disciplines that you that I learnt in those previous jobs and it serves me well because otherwise I'd probably would be a mess <laughs> or more of a mess than I am if I didn't have that sort of discipline. You probably have to take insane notes while you're out there in the field just, just recording so you know exactly what the heck happened six months later. Yeah, yeah. I take audio notes a lot, talk down the microphone to myself mainly because if I've got, you know, and say an SLR camera with multiple lenses that I'm already juggling as well as my audio equipment, I basically don't have room for a pen and a pad. <laughs> so I, take, I talk down the line to myself quite a bit, which is helpful. I do a ton of that too. <laughs> you should make an episode of just all your little self notes. Uh, look, I, I often <laughs> think that I should make a producer's cut. Like, you know how when you get the director's commentary and they talk about yeah. what went really crap in a scene? Because by the time that you've existed within a world for, you know, four days and you've heard every sigh and click of that person's voice, sometimes I have to admit by the time that I'm ready to release the episode, I'm basically ready to throttle them. And uh, <laughs> and sometimes the, the, those producers' commentaries would actually be really funny and probably X-rated. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan, how do you guys approach your deadlines? On Radio Lab, I'm also from a traditional radio background. I and I worked um, before this show. I worked on a like a news program, so I'm used to deadlines. The development of Radio Lab, the first couple of seasons were maybe six or seven episodes in an entire year. And the sort of sonic precedent was already set early on by Jad being, you know, sound rich, heavily edited, lots of different scene tape, a lot of different ways of recording narration and stuff. The team has grown simply to be able to keep that aesthetic and produce stuff quickly. We have a system of we're constantly trying to identify what kind of piece is going to take eight months two years, or there's never really anything like quicker than like six, six or eight weeks. So, so it's just, it's kind of like throughout the day, we're switching between what's coming out this week and different long formed pieces that are going on all at the same time. Yeah. Cause you guys are doing science reporting. So you have a lot of stuff that's just kind of percolating in the background the whole time simultaneously, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we try to not just do science, but the general practice is that we're not pegged to some sort of news event or something like that. Very rare. We've only done it a couple of times. Um, so yeah, the, the whole idea, whether science or not, is that it's like a long tail idea, um, something that can last and be downloaded three years later and still be interesting. Our deadlines are set usually by other criteria than, than just like, oh, I need to get this thing out because we're going to be scooped or something like that. And Dan, you're doing fiction. So do you just do them all at once and then just drop them? Yeah. For every season of a project we do, we plan out when the air dates are going to be, however many months in advance. 
And then we do all of the principal recording, you know, a few months before it drops. So like all the main scenes with the main cast. So the current season of Archive 81 that started like on the 18th of this month was pretty much totally recorded by the end of November. So we have all the cast dialogue recording done months ahead of time. In between the time that principal recording is done and the episode starts, before I dive in with editing, I'll usually start working on like what I call like alternate assets. So things like scoring, music that needs to be written, really complicated composite sound effects and sound designs that need to be you know, recorded, made from scratch, identifying that stuff. And then in terms of you know, once production kicks in, I do dialogue mix first and then the sort of assembly. And I, I basically have a hard deadline to have a complete rough cut of the show no later than one week before the day the show drops. That's like a rough mix with like most of the sound effects added at least one week ahead of time. And then I can send it to Mark and we basically have a back and forth where he gives me his notes. I make edits based on that and send them back and forth. So one week ahead of air is like my what I call the hard shame deadline. Where, you know, <laughs> if I don't get to that, then I'm going to hate myself a lot more than I already do. So, you know, it's just a matter of hitting that. I, I stick to it most of the time. I'm not the most organized person in the world, but uh, I am good at just sitting down and tuning out the rest of life's responsibilities if I have to get something done. So, you know, there you go. How big is the cast on Archive 81? Um, season two had a roughly 30 actors. Um, I th- and season one had around 20. So how do you manage those schedules? So principal cast tends to only be a fraction less than 10 people it's usually you know four to five main cast members who are recurring and we'll get all of their parts over one weekend in the studio everyone else because a lot of the action takes place on these one-off found tapes i can record those pretty much anywhere i'll usually choose different locations so the tapes sound different from the studio recordings and those it's just a matter of scheduling and carving out chunks of time over a few weekends to get everyone in i mean it's kind of a pain but it's it's not too bad, really. Do you do multi-mic with your principals, or do you do them one, one at a time? We have, yeah, we have like one mic for each actor, and they're all in the same room. If there's any interaction between characters, it's always done with them in the same room, actually performing with each other in person. We don't do the people recording their sides remotely and then recombining it to make it sound differently. Some interesting things, I mean, like for this season, we experimented a little bit. Um, if it's cool to get technical and do it, do it. Some <laughs> of the found tapes where it were just two people. We, we recorded those in mid-side. So just two actors in a small room with a, a mid-side rig tailored for like indoor dialogue recording. And that was pretty interesting to get like record, you know, both actors in like two channels of stereo di- dialogue with them both overlapping each other. It makes for an interesting sonic contrast between uh, the studio stuff, which is just one actor per mic mono versus something more spatialized because it's important for the found footage to feel different sonically from the principal recording, not just in terms of effects and making it sound degraded and staticky, but also just in terms of like, you know, spatially and conceptually how it feels you hear it. So yeah, sorry. I don't know if that went off on a tangent at all, but yeah. No, no, that's great. Do any of you guys ever play with binaural stuff with recording or, or with any otherwise like encoding stuff into binaural? Yeah, this is Jeremy. I'm su- it's something that I'm super interested in experimenting with more and something that I have a little experience with. I'm actually delving... Uh, into, not into binaural stuff, but into ambisonic stuff for another project. Yeah, me too. But it's definitely something that I'm like keeping my ears on because I think as podcast folks, we are in a unique position where we don't have to deal with the problem that most people have to deal with with binaural sound, which is people not listening through headphones. You know, the, obviously there are people who's, who are listening to podcasts on speakers, but I'd say the vast majority are listening on headphones. So I, I think it's sort of the prime medium for it. 
potentially. Did you pull down the Facebook 360 tools? Yeah, I've played with them a little. So for anyone that doesn't know that this is out there, there was an immersive 360 audio company that got purchased by Facebook. Facebook then took those tools and released them to the world for free. And what those tools let you do is they let you take single point sources or mon, you know, mono stuff or 5.1 or whatever, and you can put them in a 3D panner, and you can pan them around. That creates an output that's like an eight-channel output that you then put into a standalone encoder, and the encoder can spit out ambisonics, but it's also got an inline binaural decoder. And so I've been doing some sound design for some VR projects that some of my clients have brought in. And there is a real, real difference between a move that goes left to right just on a regular DAW panner versus something that's going through the head tracking type software because it does all the head shading and all of the other kind of stuff to make it sound like it really is flying past you or, you know, really positioning itself in space in a way that's far more detailed than just left and right. And those tools are out there and they're free. There's a little bit of a learning curve, but honestly, there's, it's not insane. There's Pro Tools templates that come down. You can pull them down and you can get started taking mono point sources or stereo point sources and doing binaural style moves just in post. You don't even need to do any kind of binaural microphone rig. You can just take regular recordings and, and do those types of mixes. And it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool what's out there right now and, and the possibilities that's, that are really starting to show up with the tools that are available out there. And this stuff's free. I'm curious, have you taken a listen as to what happens in speakers when you play that back and just sort of just how bad the phase cancellation is? Like, is it? It's not bad. It's not bad. Cool. You know, some of the stuff that I've done, you know, it's typical kind of graphic design stuff. So you have like big white bursts with, you know, things that are kind of spreading out over the screen in the 360 space. And so, you know, I'll take a couple of things that are that are big in stereo and then I'll take a couple other things that are, you know, two point sources and just kind of blow them by the listener, you know, and I'll do a few layers of that stuff. That actually still translates really well out to speakers, but what it does in the headphones is just way different. It's just a, it's a different thing. I'm definitely going to download this. Uh, speaking of tools that we're using, are you guys all using Pro Tools? Is anybody using Reaper or some kind of proprietary software? So I, I'm using Reaper, yeah. We use uh, WaveLab. WaveLab, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I use Pro Tools for editing and mixing, but I use Logic for creative stuff like any kind of like composite sound design or sound effects made from scratch or kind of bounce back and forth between both of them. Yeah, I'm in the exact same boat. I use Pro Tools as like my master canvas, and I consider Logic to become my sketchpad. <laughs> yeah, this is Dylan. I, I use Pro Tools and uh, for... Composition stuff, I I sort of rely on Ableton usually and then bring everything into Pro Tools. You know, that's interesting. The program that I make generally has no music. It, like, limits the sound design substantially because... I'd love being able to bring in things from other programs, but it's just it's one of the stylistic parameters of this particular program. But one of the things that I have been fiddling with is just using the native sound that I'm capturing because everything is recorded on site and I don't use anyone else's recordings and putting it through Paul's stretch which is a really, really old, I think, by the look of it. I love Paul Stretch. Paul Stretch is fantastic. I, I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's just gorgeous. 
And, but that gives me enough to play with in the short turnaround time. But one day I'll move on to another program and hopefully be able to bring in more music, just more constructed sound than because this particular one has such a natural sound vibe. I was going to ask, what's everyone's like biggest gripe about what they use to edit in? I just feel like Jeremy and I talk about this a lot with Pro Tools or other things, and it, I'd be interested to hear what... Can I say, I love working in Pro Tools. I know everyone just likes to bash on Pro Tools, but I stink and love it, man. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Ed, this is Dylan again. Uh, I have a 20-year relationship with Pro Tools, and it, it is like a very fiery marriage. <laughs> and uh, I think in part because... I, well, I used to use it to compose with also, and... That's where it really gets extremely annoying. And I feel like a lot of what I was doing to compose within Pro Tools, a lot of what I was doing is kind of like a hack once you get used to some other program that's really made for composing. So that's my only gripe with it. The moment you start bringing in like working with MIDI and and other things like that, it's just just a disaster, I think. But for everything else, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, for uh, for editing, I wouldn't use uh, I wouldn't use anything else, and definitely the the composition thing that Dylan mentioned is my biggest gripe. But there are also little things like um, the fact that there's a difference between a mono and a stereo track, or the fact that buses aren't generated uh, from scratch when you're you know you have to, you have to go through this whole extra step of like making a bus, and then you have to assign. it's just all sorts of stuff like that. That's really kind of like this weird old like kind of um, I guess, skeuomorphic approach of, like, trying to act as if it's some really big old analog console. But the truth of of the matter is that's a digital program, so it should behave efficiently, (laughs) you know? Dan? I mean, mine's pretty much just the same as Jeremy's. It's the mapping. It's the I.O. stuff. Um, As someone who switches between, like, two different systems, like, I have my kind of stationary studio, like, workstation, but then I'm also working in the field a lot. And usually it's fine, but... It's just an, it's just annoying like having a little an extra five minutes where I have to reconfigure the I/O if I'm like opening something on my laptop as, as opposed I don't know I know it's not it's it's obviously not the biggest problem in the world I know but it's just annoying so Jeff what are you finding with Reaper that's bothering you Oh I, I feel I feel so silly saying this but I, I'm such a huge evangelist for that program. Um, I think it honestly part of it comes from me being uh, like a really nerdy teenager and um, and being a really big evangelist for Winamp back in the day. If any of you guys remember Winamp, oh man, so so nice. yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, so Reaper was written by that guy, right? Um, primarily, I think his name's Justin Frankel, right? Um, and so so he he was so I, I was kind of following him around uh, just on the internet, you know, and I, I saw that he had started making this software, and it, it looked it looked quite interesting. I know. I know that it shares a lot of similarities with Pro Tools. At least I knew that at the time, and um, I was learning Pro Tools in college. So I think part of my part of my angst towards Pro Tools comes from just like the, the things that are not Pro Tools' fault. Just the the uh, general angst that one feels as they try to learn a technical skill that is that is by all means challenging. Um, and so I think I think I got a little bit of angst towards Pro Tools um, just off of that. But when I was about twenty one, I switched over to Reaper, and I've been using it ever since. And one of the things that that I found to be completely indispensable in that program is the ability to create macros, right? And so, like, I can have these incredibly complex tasks completed with a, a single button push. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not available in any other 
um, software, you can just string together long chains of commands that will all execute with a single push. And I've taken that ability and very heavily customized the interface in Reaper. Um, I, I know you're talking about gripes. No, man, take it positive. It's yeah. all good. <laughs> I really struggle to think of anything with the software that I dislike. The only things I dislike are things that you can't do in any other software either, which is to, to even further customize the interface. I've taken out all the, the music abilities in the program, at least from the, the main interface. So there's nothing related to music in the main screen. And I can go and choose to re-enable that, but like all of the music making capabilities, including counting things by bars and measures and all of that, are just turned off and I never have to worry about them. It's funny that you're such an evangelist. I have never once used Reaper, but I've probably recommended it a hundred <laughs> times to people because because there's so many evangelists out there. And whenever somebody comes to me and you know they're they're just getting into this stuff or they're just out of college or something, and they look at the price of Pro Tools and anything cool that might come with it, it's just incredibly daunting. And I'm always like, everyone says Reaper is amazing. So go for that. As, as a Pro Tools guy, I'm rolling into Reaper right now. I would say, Jeff, though, I do huge macros inside of Pro Tools as well. I use Keyboard Maestro for that. Mm-hmm. I find that to be super powerful and super efficient. I think Pro Tools plus Keyboard Maestro is in a lot of ways as powerful as Reaper with its own macros. Okay, that's good to know. Is that a Mac program? Yeah, it's a Mac. It's a standalone macro program, but I mean, I've, oh, okay. I've I've used it to like create ten thousand region groups for you know, <laughs> doing time lapses and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean. uh, this is Jeremy again. One one other thing um, occurred to me about Pro Tools, and and really, I think about all DAWs. Um, that's really specific to radio and what I was speaking about earlier about flexible dialogue is that in radio we're always making all these edits that then cascade down the timeline to an hour later. And so anytime you're making a small edit, you have to be really careful because it's it's like a big domino effect. And it can always mess up things later on, especially in regards to having dialogue in sync to music. And I, I would be really curious to see a doll with some features that handles that in a more intelligent way. Something like Pro Tools Shuffle Mode or like a really well-set-up track group layout in Pro Tools that sort of allows you to shuffle things around on your dialogue tracks but sort of knows uh, what's going on with music and just makes that a little more foolproof because that's definitely what, what gets me every time. I mean, how how is that not accomplished by by shuffle um, in is that what it's called, right, in Pro Tools, shuffle mode? Yeah, so in, in Pro Tools, it can be accomplished by going into shuffle mode and then using track groups. Uh, So if you're doing a big multi-track edit, you can say, just make that edit to all your dialogue tracks and then, you know, push all your dialogue tracks forward. But you don't, you don't want to make an edit in the music under that. So you can either sort of make the edit and then repair the edit that you made inadvertently to the music or you can, it's, it's just kind of a mess. Sorry to cut in Jeremy, like the nudge tool can kind of like get around that, but it's not perfect yet. Even if I do like a ripple edit that I want to do, it'll still like mess up like crossfades I've made at certain places if it's not at the right place. And it'd be nice if it was 100% as opposed to like 95% in terms of accuracy. Totally. This is Jeff again here. I'm kind of curious to know if this is something that is, is achievable in, in Pro Tools or not. So this is how I do it, right? Is I have a macro set up that when I hit shift and I hit delete at the same time, it turns off ripple editing for a moment. And then it turns it back on the moment I let go of shift. So I can go ahead and like delete something or scoot something around for a minute. And I know that every other track is going to be unaffected. But then as soon as whatever I've deleted is gone, 
the Ripple editing's back on and I can make those those edits as necessary without affecting any of my automation. The way that I do that in Pro Tools when I'm editing this podcast is I have a macro set up where if I hit, uh, it's a similar, I hit whatever keystroke I hit, it's, I think it's Apple One, and it'll put me into my Ripple edit with my groups turned on. Um, and I can do those type of edits that include, you know, moving the sound effects with the with the dialogue and all of that. And then I go if I go into uh, Command Two, then it turns it back into slip mode and it turns my groups off so that I can do a little dialogue fix up that's not affecting the timing of anything else. So you can use macros to do that. You you can use a macro again with Keyboard Maestro to to trigger several commands at once. And so I basically have two edit states that I'm ever in when I'm doing a podcast edit anyway. Just to get super technical, sorry to trigger your track groups. Are you using a memory location and then like the period number period no, I'm just thing, turning or? groups on like all at once so, so it's the shift command G yeah 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 totally yep I want to talk about recording rigs <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't want to hear about mine <laughs> oh now we do <laughs> and what are you using to record out in the field? Mm, I use a, a mix. Uh, it's not super extensive. So I'm often recording actually just into a Zoom H6. Um, I have a sound devices 722. Uh, but the reason that it doesn't get carted around is because it's heavier and I'm often walking up a bloody mountain. And no one wants a radio presenter like puffing the whole way through <laughs> the podcast, right? So I'm often like, I often use a Zoom H6, which I found really good. And I actually use the little mics that just clip onto the top, the stereo mics, a lot, a hell of a lot, though they're super duper sensitive to any handling. So um, I often will just leave it out and catch a dawn chorus and actually just leave the recorder in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then in terms of mics, you want to know that about that? or Yes, please. Yeah, uh, look, I have been using just a Sennheiser ME66, uh, just, you know, uh, it's a hypercardioid boom type mic, but I just use it on a, a little handle. And I do have like a little cardioid mic. Um, I have a hydrophone that I cart around with me everywhere. Yeah, so it's it's a relatively small kit, mainly because every single episode is moving, hiking in a kayak, getting in and out of boats, like something like that. And I've got to be recording while I'm doing it. So uh, yeah, so it's a small kit that I feel like I can handle. On my wish list is a Tilinga Parabolic. Um, yeah. <laughs> Dan and I used one uh, recently. Yeah. Although not a Tilinga, but yeah, we uh, we recorded a flock of about two to 3,000 pigeons with one, and it was really fun. I have uh, a little bit of a mafia story. And in Brooklyn, there's this sort of old tradition that's almost entirely died out now of sport pigeons, of people uh, keeping coops, keeping flocks of pigeons on their roofs, and then releasing them into the air, and then their neighbors do the same, and, you know, whoever comes back with the most pigeons wins. Those sort of two flocks kind of compete and return home, and some of them occasionally will bring your neighbor's pigeons home with them. So we found this guy, this 75-year-old Sicilian guy uh, in Williamsburg, and we went to his roof to record his pigeons, and it was just like super beautiful day, and the pigeons were great, and we got all these amazing sounds, and we were using uh, one of the parabolic microphones. The, The pigeon coop was on top of like a private social club bar kind of thing, like a really just old school place. And so afterwards, Dan and I had a beer uh, with the guys downstairs. And uh, they saw our parabolic microphone and they sort of raised their eyebrows a little bit. And one of the guys was like, hey, that's the mic they used to get John Gotti. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
That's on my wish list. Tilinga have these ones that sort of roll up like a yoga mat, the actual dish. So that would help me because I'm always catching planes and whatnot all around. Jeff, what do you use? I'm in a similar position to, to Anne on this, I think. Um, and I, I, should, I should point out that I'm in a lot of ways self-taught and I also am in a lot of ways uh, I had no money when I started. And so I've always used cheap equipment. Just just earlier this week, I, I finally got my first like grown-up kid recorder. Um, I just got a Tascam DR100 Mark III in the mail. It's sitting right next to me, and I'm still scared of it. I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've been playing with it a little bit with a uh, Bear Dynamic M58. I believe that's what it is. It's a long Omni microphone, and I got I got this recorder specifically because of the high signal to noise ratio on the on the preamps, so you can run these dynamic mics out in the field. But I haven't ever actually used that for a show yet. Everything I've put out in the last like two years that I've recorded has been on a Zoom H4n, or excuse me, a Zoom H2n, um, which I think I got for two hundred bucks and to appall many people in the field. I I, I use the internal mics on it. I've used a lot of these Zoom recorders, and I don't like the mics on any of the other ones. I really like the way that these little tiny condenser mics in the H2N sound. The H2N is an ambisonic, isn't it? Or it's it's a multi-mic array in there, isn't it? There's there's four mics in there. There's an XY pair, and there's a mid-side pair as well. Yeah. I only like the way the XY pairs sound, too. I don't like yeah, the mid-side Yeah, I use the pair. XY, yeah. I use the XY a lot. The thing is, is that it feels like a guilty secret when <laughs> you're actually using one of the cheaper, you know, especially speaking to sound people. Yeah. Because I know that purists out there, you know, they sort of can, I mean, a lot of people can turn up their nose. But the reality of sound recording is is knowing how to use whatever equipment you have. And I, you know, even the cheapest equipment can actually bring really good results if you're monitoring correctly and actually thinking about how you're gathering that sound. Well, that's my opinion anyway. Maybe that's just because we only have yeah. cheap equipment. <laughs> no, I think it's very true. And I've, I've definitely lost gigs over it too. You know, I try to pick up tape syncs every now and then mm. and they'll be like, what's your rig? And I'm like, actually, you know, it's like, it's an H2N, but like, here's, here's some here's some proof in the pudding. Like I'll send them a link, you know, and maybe they can hear something I can't like, uh, cause I, I know I go back and listen to my old stuff and I, I definitely hear a lot of mistakes in it. I've also heard a lot of people using really nice equipment wrong too. <laughs> and the other thing is that I always think about that end user, which for me is spread across AM and FM networks, as well as digital podcasting, um, and, you know, listening online and ha- the equipment that they're listening through, are they actually going to be able to hear that, you know, noise that I know I can hear on our Genelex in here, obviously, because you can hear every tiny little thing. What are they actually going to hear? Because, you know, I'm not producing for for surround sound for movies where they're going to have a beautiful rig sitting perfectly in the centre when they're listening. And so... For me, it's really that like ease of use to outcome. And that's why, but it does, I, you know, I feel really sheepish talking about it, actually. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> on the same, on the same <laughs> boat. <laughs> oh, you know, you shouldn't though, because I, I, I always say to a lot of people that noise floor is super overrated and it really is about mic position. If you place the mic the right way, you're really, really going to, you know, be 90, 90% there, no matter what mic you've actually put in your hand. Mm. Um, I, I personally really, really like using expensive mics, but that's because I kind of have the opportunity to do so, but I'm not going to turn my nose up at a good recording that was made on, on a piece of gear that didn't cost a thousand dollars at all. Well, that's good to know. Jeremy and Dylan and Dan, you guys are all kind of studio people, right? Dylan, what do you think? 
I don't do much field recording at all. Um, and my experience is, uh, you know, we have a, a couple of sound devices around here and a couple of Zooms. I bought the Zooms because uh, we hand them out to a lot of different people. It's just way easier. There's no, I'll pick up the sound devices and if I'm like lost in some crazy mode in the midst of getting some, uh, getting sound, raccoon it can be, read. yeah, raccoon <laughs> read. they can just be insanely frustrating. Uh, I've always kind of just gotten lost at any sort of interface that always has, like you have to scroll through lots of mo- modes to get to something. I, I immediately just want to throw away. I really like the cheap and easy to use stuff. Um, and I think so much about post-production and my brain just immediately goes to correcting stuff and the tools that are there are just so incredible uh, that I would much rather someone get amazing tape on an iPhone than, you know, average shit on a, on a sound devices. Well, the other thing about the smaller recorders, too, is that you can get them in places that you can't get a full rig. Like, you know, so... Yeah, totally. I've got I've got a three-year-old, but when he was a one-year-old, um, I was recording all of his goo-goos and gagas and every little noise he was making. Well, he wasn't going to sit and wait for me to set up a whole big rig, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I had my little, you know, PCMM10, and I would put it right there by his face, and he would play with it for a while, and then he'd get bored of it, and then he'd make noises into it for like half an hour, and I got all this gold <laughs> because I got, you know, I had the one little recorder that was there that that was small enough to where he could forget about it after a minute. But also listening, you know, to the presence that the different microphones give you helps me create what I what like what what the environment that I was actually in as well. So I don't just use any or all of the microphones at one time. You know, it's definitely a selective process and me thinking about what I'm trying to get out of it. And, you know, the old saying, shit in, shit out. So it needs to just (laughs) be the best I can possibly take at any one moment, you know, under any conditions. And I just would like to say that I'm covered in leech bites at the moment because of sound recording. (laughs) (laughs) Bloody animals. (laughs) <laughs> Literally. Do you want to expand on that? How, how did you get these leech bites? Oh, frog recordings. Yeah. <laughs> Swampy. How do you guys approach your loudness with regards to your mixing and your levels? Like, how loud do you go? And do podcasts sit differently than where your broadcasts do? This is Dylan, uh, Radio Lab. This is uh, a subject that is, in, uh, I just find myself eternally tangled in. Um, I think mainly because when we were first producing Radiolab, the whole idea, even before podcasting, we kind of took the the approach that it was going to be something you'd listen to in your headphones, which I sort of mean to be, like, and especially if it's earbuds, I, I sort of mean to be, it's going to be on the compressed side, unlike a lot of other public radio that came before it, which is, like, really into dynamic range and stuff like that, uh, you know, for classical music or whatever. At a certain point, Jad very quickly decided uh, when podcasting was out, like, look, man, we're we're competing not with other radio programs, but with other people's uh, uh, media interests. When it's on your iPhone, um, you know, now someone on the train could be watching a movie and then listening to Radiolab or listening to a Metallica album and then listening to Radiolab. And we decided, like, that's how loud we're going to be. <laughs> yeah, you're never going to get all the way up to Death Magnetic, but... <laughs> no. <laughs> 
Right. The last few years when people in, in broadcasting got very, uh, you know, in public broadcasting at least, uh, it's been in television and other things for a long time, got very serious uh, about loudness and loudness standards. Um, you know, we pretty much just mixed the show the way we've always mixed it. And then for broadcast, drop it down like 7 dB. And that's that's all we do. I don't use like loudness meters or any of that. I, I've I've started to dabble in it a little bit, but mostly that's what we're doing. So when we launched this show years ago, I pulled your show down and we did use the loudness meter just to see exactly where the heck you guys were at, just mm-hmm. as a reference of where the heck we should be. And, and what'd you find? <laughs> well, you know, it's I forgot what we actually measured you at, but I think these days I try and hit negative eighteen LUFS. Yeah. That's about where I stay. For I'm doing everything at 16. Yeah, I'm usually between 20 and 18. Yeah, 16 is hot when you've got other kind of like big sound effects that you want to sit on top. In my yeah, opinion, totally. no. yeah, totally. Um, there is no difference between what goes out on pod and what goes out on broadcast for us, um, and it goes through a whole heap of compressors. Um, but in, within the transmission system, I know that much. It does sound different. Uh, you know, it's actually really important for me to be listening to it in a car and things like that as much as it is to hear it in the pod version um, because it's still where thousands upon, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of people ac- actually access the program. Yeah, so there is no difference in the sound at this end, though they do talk a lot. There's a lot of talk around the traps about how different the presentation or the voiceover should be for pod versus broadcast. Um, But there's not so much argument about the sound level. I'm curious, is anybody doing any kind of compensation in their mastering process for the ultimate loss and degradation that you're going to get from from the final MP3 that's actually being streamed out? Uh, I just sit back stuff. and cry to myself for a little bit. Yeah, it is a bit <laughs> that way, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially you could go out there and, you know, uh, I'm out there sweating my, you know, head off and capturing that sound and then thinking about what's going to happen to it <laughs> before it gets to the listener. It, it's a bit heartbreaking. We have a setup of um, smaller test speakers that, that simulate all sorts of different listening environments. <laughs> That I can have a listen through. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So it means that, you know, if I need a particular bird to be popping out, um, I can make sure that that is actually coming through in on shitty speakers. But as with regards to prepping for an MP3, I mean, what, what could you actually do, though? Yeah, I mean, know. I don't know. I saw Nugent has this thing out that will actually, you can put it as a plug-in on your master, and then it will actually sort of preview what it will sound like. So I don't, I, I, yeah. It's just a shit button. Yeah, shit button. (laughs) I'm kind of curious about that though, you know. I mean, the way that I approach it is just try and hit the appropriate loudness and and let it be what it's going to be. I have been experimenting with using tape emulators and other tube emulators um, to try and uh, get the sound as warm as possible I think about it a little bit more in the very last stage, like I'm mastering or mixing a record or something. And um, I, I, I like to believe that it has an effect. Uh, we just released something a couple of days ago, and I used a, some UAD tape emulators and, and tube emulators. And I, I really sort of believe that once it's compressed to MP3 that it's somehow – 
feels a little warmer, but it could just be bullshit in my head. I have no idea. <laughs> so actually on that front, I've, I've been experimenting with this as well. This is Jeff, by the way. One thing that, that's a big problem with, with effects, and I'm sure you guys have all run into this before, is where you put an effect on something and it just makes it louder. And by nature of it being louder, it sounds better to us, right? Mm. And I recently found a plugin. It's a, it's a dual plugin that you put in your effects chain. And you put one before your effects chain and one after your effects chain. And it, moder- and it monitors the volume coming in and, the mo- and it monitors the volume coming out. So you have a true A-B switch that you can flip. And you can hear the dry signal and the wet signal at the same volume to see what your effects are actually doing. A lot of uh, the newer isotope plugins do that also. Yeah. Uh, they're just sort of set. It, that's, a, that's a really nice feature. To, to it's really nice because I was realizing that, yeah, pretty much all my saturation was doing was just making it louder and that it, the rest of it was just garbage, at least to my ears, which aren't, which aren't completely trained. The other way that I kind of approach the, the episodes that I mix, I, you know, Tim and I share mixing duties on this and so on, on our podcast anyway. And so the stuff that I do that's got a lot of kind of effects in it is I will try and mix it. I'll mix it softer. I'll mix it at like TV broadcast level, so like negative 24 so that I have enough headroom to make my sound effects loud enough to do what they need to do to go punch and be loud and be crazy. And in a lot of cases, they'll be way louder than the voice. And so I've got to kind of pick my spots with regards to the mix. And then in post, I'll just use RX to slam that thing up to negative 18. Um, and I found actually found that works really well to set the balances a little bit lower and then just use a limiter to bring it all the way up. Let me just say thanks to everybody for coming on because this is this has been way cool. I, I I love getting to talk shop with people about this kind of stuff, and and honestly, I'm I'm big fans of of the work that you guys do. So much love and much appreciation for you guys coming on and talking to us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. I, I learned a lot thanks. from this. Man, did you do did you do a demo of sound particles? I did. Yep. We're, I, we're I, big fans. <laughs> I love sound particles. Um, Jeremy actually turned me on to that, and I really learned a lot from that from that demo. Oh cool. Yeah, really. I it was one of the better demos that I that I've I've seen to just I, and you know, it's kind of mathy, so It really is. There's a learning curve to it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, um, anyway, so thanks for that. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I spent all, my whole workday today sitting there building up an echo collective library inside of sound particles. So, that's that's what I did today. It's a really um, fun fun program. It is. It's it's uh it, it causes you to think about things a little bit differently, and it, it creates sounds that you can't create with other tools. So yeah. it's, uh, it's way cool. I'm a fan. I, I, I got to say, if you don't mind me just hijacking this for a second, because I, I, sure. um, I, <laughs> for so long, I can't tell you how many times I, I have some sort of diagrammatic scene that I, need, I needed to have um, just stuff coming at me, almost like an like a, a, um, a asteroid field, right? It, maybe it's like a, some kind of um, photon. Maybe it's some sort of like virus, whatever it is. We, I just kept on running into the same thing, and I was just like, man, if I just had this, like a scene, that, and I could just drag and drop my, my sounds into it, and then it would just sort of play out that way, it would just be incredible. And I was really looking hard for it and trying to build like all kinds of effects chains and stuff like that and Jeremy was just like oh sound particles man yeah man and it changed me <laughs> it changed <laughs> everything it's 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 a, it's a whole thing I'd, I hadn't heard of this before I just looked this up while you're talking about it, and this is something I've wanted for years yeah 
There's a, I, I did a whole walkthrough. I did, there's, if you look at the, if you look at the Tone Benders website and just search it for sound particles, I've got a video walkthrough that I did of all the stuff that I did with it, I guess a few months ago. The developer, Nuno Fonseca, is a really cool guy, easy to, to reach out to and say, hey man, uh, I want this or I want that in this, in this software. He's super responsive and super smart, so... Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Sound particles. High five, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> what up? Thank you. This is this looks amazing. This is Tim again. I haven't spoken for about half an hour. I think. <laughs> I just want to say thanks to everybody for making this happen because we're dealing with I think five or six different time zones here between where we all are and uh, just finding a time that can make this all work. Not everybody's at their most optimal time to be uh, talking about work stuff because it's uh, it's nearly 10 o'clock at night here for me and it's I think the middle of the day for Anne on the other side of the planet. But thank you very much everybody for taking part. This has been really awesome and we really appreciate you guys carving out the time for it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks thank a lot you. and uh, thanks yeah. for the podcast. Yeah, it's awesome guys. Yeah. And uh, everyone should come to Sydney for a drink. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Ann Jones, Jeff Emptman, Dan Powell, Jeremy Bloom, and Dylan Keefe for jumping on with us today. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks to Stacey Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tone Benders. Go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. Support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. See you, everybody. Thank you. See ya. Yeah, thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com. Mm-hmm.